This is Rabbi Josh Uter of the Stanton Street Shul. Thank you for downloading this class podcast. These classes are provided free of charge through the generosity of the Stanton Street Shul community and supporters like you. If you do enjoy them, please consider making a donation to our synagogue's building fund on our website's shop donate page at www.stantonstshul.com. Good evening, everyone. It is Wednesday, June 25th, 2014. Um, sort of mixed feelings where I say that this is the 50th current Jewish questions that we've been doing since really restarted this series again. It was actually started a bit on Sunday class and then moved it to Wednesday. Uh, but based on my count, it's 50, which means it's probably off by one or two because I can't count. Um, but at any rate, uh, it's also like going to be the last in the current Jewish question series I'll be giving at the Stanton Street Shul. Uh, whether or not I continue doing stuff like this in Israel, who knows? Um, but it's certainly been a lot of fun. And, you know, this is actually kind of, I mean, a fun topic to begin with. Um, because the subject today is halachic humor. And it also goes back to a lot of the core of, you know, what sort of started off current Jewish questions, we kind of deviated a bit from the initial idea to just questions that kept coming up to something's, you know, interesting happening in the news might relate to us Jewishly. So let's talk about that. Right. So the subject of today's mention is halachic humor. Um, so I hope you all came prepared with your bad jokes or good jokes for that matter. I mean, I came prepared with the bad jokes, but I always do. Anyway, um, so why discuss this topic well last week for those who follow the internet it's weird those who follow the internet or those who i think more people follow the internet than watch tv let you know specifically america's got talent um but there was a modern orthodox jewish kid who went on america's got talent and corinne read us the jta summary uh, Josh Orlean has been invited invited back to America's Got Talent, but can we keep allowing 12-year-old Mexico's first young Orthodox contestant, by the way, uh, come back to shul? Orlean, an aspiring stand-up comedian from White Plains, New York, auditioned last night on a television, televised talent show with a routine that judges described as naughty. The judges, Howard Stern, Howie Mandel, Heidi Klum, and Mel B., invited him back to the next level. You're 12 years old. You're talking about all that dirty stuff. I like it, Mel B. said. If nothing else, you've got a great piece of tape for your bar mitzvah reception, Mandel said, offering a mazel tov with his decision to vote in favor of sending Orlean to the next level. So I actually cut out here the jokes because, I mean, you could probably guess from the context here that they were not appropriate. Uh, you know, I would say certainly not appropriate for a shiur. Uh, the question was, was it appropriate for anyone at any time, or at least in particular for an Orthodox Jewish kid? Um and the kid got a lot of flack, as did the parents. Uh, there were even calls, you know, uh, people getting in touch with the guy's rabbi, principal of his school, uh, who actually, you know, put out a very interesting letter um, that I got sent. I didn't include it here because I don't know how much of it's for, you know, public dissemination. Um, but basically, his take was, look, 
you know, we're a school. We educate. You know, what's the point of like, unless everything, if you're a principal of a school, everything's a teaching moment. If it's not, you're in the wrong profession. So what's ever going on behind the scenes, I don't know. I'm staying out of this. Uh, but you can understand why people in the Jewish world might get particularly unnerved at this. Uh, as the article mentions, wasn't the first Orthodox Jewish person there. We've had plenty of Jews in showbusiness. We've had plenty of Orthodox Jews in showbusiness. I've been told there are Jews who went into comedy. I don't know. Um, but even with comedy, you've got some comedians that made cleaner jokes than others. Uh, Joan Rivers works a lot of blue. Uh, Jackie Mason, right, does a lot of blue stuff too, right? Uh, they don't get as much flack, but also one, they're not identifiably, or even though they might be, you know, identifiably Jewish and part of the ethnic humor comes out in their routines, uh, they're not specifically orthodox, meaning you know, Jackie Mason, I don't believe, does a routine with a kippah. Uh, I honestly, have I ever seen him live? Not that I recall, but I, my understanding is that he doesn't. Whereas in this case, I mean, one of the things that made this particularly unusual is if you saw the routine, it wasn't really great stand-up. So if anyone, like, check out Last Comic Standing. It's a, a another competition show that comes up every couple of years or so. And there you can actually see, like, what better stand-up is, tight stand-up, either observational or whatever. What made you know this kid unique and advanced was the shock value, was that here's a young Orthodox Jewish kid who's making jokes that you would not expect an Orthodox Jewish kid to make. That was it. That was the shtick, right? I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I can't imagine him lasting that long because you really can't build a full act on that. After a while, the shock value is going to wear off. But the reason why it's shocking is the same reason why we would say almost intuitively, hey, this isn't appropriate. Because if it didn't matter, then it, you know, again, wouldn't matter. Right? And in which case, he just wouldn't be as funny. Or wouldn't have had the same reaction that he otherwise would have. All right? So... With this in mind, what exactly are some of the you know parameters of humor? It's a weird question to ask, and I you know was able to find some gemaras that I thought were kind of relevant to this particular case, and perhaps some things beyond, including one of the absolute weirdest gemaras I think I, I can't say it's the weirdest one I've ever learned because I've probably forgotten stuff, but it's the weirdest one I could ever remember teaching. Um, so that's going to come up. So we're going to split this up into two categories. Like some that are first category would be more negative approaches to humor, things that are more qualified and things that are qualified in a more positive way, right? So we're not going to really come up with a straight answer. Uh, you'll also note that some people called um, what this kid did a Chilul Hashem, which we have a whole separate class on what exactly is a Chilul Hashem. So I avoided all of those classes. Anyone's interest, I think Chilul Hashem was one of the earlier ones we did in this. Yeah, I just finished reading. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Great. You see? So still on. So anyone's interest in the Chilul Hashem aspect, listen to that cheer. Today, just want to talk about the issue of humor. Okay? Uh, Wendy, Gumar, uh, start us off with a section of bad humor. Uh, so first is a, is a quick line from Gamarin Yoma 29A. Unchaste imagination is more injurious than the sin itself, your analogy being the odor of meat. 
Yeah, in plain English, this means that the thoughts of sinning are worse than sin. Just as the smell of meat or smell of rancid meat is more injurious to you than actually eating bad meat. Now, whether or not that's true physiologically, I don't know. But you know, when you smell something rancid, it can make you sick, right? Even without eating it. So the sense here is that this is even worse. You can even have the analogy of, you know, if you've got the thought of sinning in your head, it can, you know, you've got that real Yates air. It can sort of take over your mind until you actually act on it and strip lengthening it out. How do you think this is relevant to humor? Um, is that humor about breaking a conventional thought? What do you mean? Um, I don't know. I'm thinking about how, um, one way of joking is to have something established, set up, and then breaking it, like the unexpected. Okay. How do you think that relates to this, Kamara? Um, because in trying to think of ways of breaking that conventional thought, you you can go to the extreme of, you know, of, of being the opposite of good. Like, let's say, um, can I offer you something? Coffee, tea, rat poison. And there is the idea of poisoning someone. Ah, okay. Right. So, I, now you see what you're saying. I, I would have phrased a little bit differently, but you're absolutely right. A large part of comedy, well, I shouldn't say a large part of comedy, because I'm not a comedian. So let me rephrase that. One way to be an effective comedian, much better, is you don't say things explicitly, but you put things in people's heads and make them run away with it. Right. So Wendy just gave an example of like throwing in rat poison. So now, like when you do something, it's like, ah, I thought about giving you rat poison. Ha 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 ha. That's certainly one way you could do that. Um, I hope I just no one actually is doing that right now. Um, right. So that's one way. Another thing is, let's say you're talking about you know lurid jokes. Right. No, I shouldn't say no comedian. So the better comedians can still be raunchy without being explicit. That's how you're able to be on network TV as opposed to cable. Right. So how do you do that by not saying the seven words you can't say on TV, but you still say things that put the image in people's heads. Right. Groucho Marx line about the cigar. Uh, wow. See, now you're putting me in an awkward situation here about, like, do I repeat Groucho Marx's line? I like my cigar, too. All right. Leave it at that. Okay? Right? So, and that's in the 50s, mind you. And that was considered risque. But because... You know, it's through analogy. It's something which isn't just as explicit, like, okay, you've dealt with it. You're putting thoughts inside people's heads that probably they, you know, would not be the best or purest of thoughts, depending on, again, what type of comedian you are. All right? Uh, next up, a few sources that deal with this idea of a lates, which is often trans- alternately translated as a mocker, a scorner, and we'll see a few different variants of this. So, first Pusik and Tehillim. Risa. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. 
Okay, so it's for those who aren't familiar with this pasuk, get to know this verse. Very first pasuk in Tehillim. All right, so we're going to focus on that last line there. Moshav leitzim lo yashav. What does it mean not to sit amongst these scorner type peoples? So one explanation, you know, I mean, like many verses in the Torah. Well, I shouldn't say like many. Wow, I, I, I mean, what's with the overgeneralizations today? So I'm like making up for time. I'm yeah. You think by now I'd learn to be more precise the first time out? This particular verse is interpreted in a lot of different ways in the Talmud. I just picked a couple of here. You know where. The term, you know, lates would actually be used and explained. So here's one from Avodazar 19a. Risa, continue. Nor sat in the seat of the scornful, for he did not sit in the company of the Philistines because they were scoffers, as it is said. And it came to pass, when their hearts were merry, that they said, Call for Samson that he may make us sport. Right, so the word... You know, it, the root is schok, which could also mean laughter, you know, do something to provide enjoyment. So there's something, some connection, semantic connection at least, in this Gemara between a late, you know, mocker scorner and people who are just laughing around or perhaps laughing at someone else's expense or some type of laughing going on. Um, continue. Uh, next is a Gemara in Psachim 112b. Four things did our holy teacher command his children. Do not dwell in Shechem. Yeah, it's a hard word to pronounce. Somewhere in Babylonia. Okay. Because its inhabitants are scoffers and more corrupt due to despair. Right, so there's another problem, meaning you think, well, what's so horrible about just, you know, laughing? Right? So, seems to be the problem, you know, just... It could lead you, according to this Gemara, to disbelief. Any thoughts on how before we get to the next one? Okay, so let's do the next Gemara and try to discuss that a bit. Avodazar 18b. So, Rab Shimon ben Pazi expounded the following verse as follows. What does scripture mean by, Happy is the man who hath not walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor stood in the way of the sinners, nor sat in the way of the scornful? If he did not walk that way at all, how could he stand there? And if he did not stand there, he obviously could not sit among them. As he did not sit among them, he could not have scorned. The wording is to teach thee that if one walks towards the wicked, he will subsequently stand with them. And if you stand with them, in the end you will sit with them. And if you sit, you will come to scorn. And if you scorn, the scriptural verse will be applicable to him. According to this, the end result is you don't want to be anywhere close to the wicked because ultimately they were going to lead you to sitting in scorn, which is weird, because normally you would think that being a rasha, being wicked, is the end. Here it's associating with wicked people leads you to do something that's really bad, the scorning part, right? So if you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scorn, you alone will bear it. Said Rabbi Elazar, he who scoffs affliction will befall him. As it is said, now therefore do ye not scoff, lest your punishment be made severe. 
Rebbe used to say to the rabbis, I beg of you, do not scoff so that you do, you incur no punishment. Rav Katina said, he who scoffs, his sustenance will be reduced. As it is said, he withdraws his hands from the case of scoffers. Rav Shimon Beish Ben Lakish said, He who scoffs will fall into Gehenna. As it is said, a proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name, worketh for arrogant wrath. And by wrath, not but Gehenna is meant. And it is said, that day is a day of wrath. Rav Oshia said, He who is haughty falls into Gehenna. As it is said, a proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name, worketh for arrogant wrath. And by wrath, not but Gehenna is meant. As it is said, that is a day of wrath. Fine. Uh, he who scoffs brings this destruction upon the world, as it is said. Now therefore be not scoffers, lest your affliction be made severe. For an extermination wholly determined have I heard. Said Rabbi Lazar, it is indeed a grievous sin, since it occurs affliction at first and extermination at the last. Wow. This scoffing thing is pretty serious. Any thoughts as to why the scoffing thing is really bad? Or not, why is it bad to this extent? I mean, you were talking, like, if not metaphysical certainty, which you got, you know, there's a lot of speculation regarding this. Even if you're going to say that this is all hyperbole, it's pretty strong hyperbole. What do you think is so bad with scoffing? Is it that it's a gateway to more destructive behavior? Explain how. It just because well, it's kind of backward, but it's like if you scoff, you become a haughty person. So there is a connection there, yeah. meaning scoffing is connected to haughtiness because it puts you in a position of judge, that you know enough to joke about it. You said something else that was very intriguing too, which was of being destructive. Scoffing almost by its nature is very destructive. Because when you make mockeries of certain things, you are usually tearing something down without putting something else up. Let's say you have a particular position, and I think it's wrong. Now, an intelligent way of approaching it is being like, hey, I think what you said is incorrect. But if I joke about how stupid it is, I've never actually proved you wrong. I've just, you know, negated you without providing anything else. So here's an example. Um, John Stewart, right? He does a whole lot of mockery. He does at, um, he had a really powerful, um, daily show after 9-11. And he described what he did on the show as being the kid in the back of a classroom shooting spitballs, right? Now, to his credit, he has done a lot of constructive stuff since then. In particular, um, uh, the Zagodi bill or whatever that was for the 9-11 rescuers. Like, did stuff to actually, you know, help with a degree of social activism where it's not just pure mockery of, look, here, how everyone is stupid, but sometimes that can actually promote to activism, right? So, 
it can get subtle there, but again, the fact that he, you know, described it years ago as shooting spitballs, that's what a great deal of mockery and scorning is. Where you're not actually providing anything new, you're almost taking cheap shots and not really taking something seriously. You can exaggerate. If anyone's interested, uh, Schopenhauer has a list, oh man, I'm blanking on the number, 40 some odd ways to win an argument, and they're pretty much all like cynical, you know, rhetorical cheats. The last one being ad hominem, as opposed to saying, hey, here's why you're incorrect. Now let's say you apply that to Torah, right? Joking about Torah could easily lead people to non-observant, right? Now, some people get very nervous about joking about anything related to Judaism. And you can almost understand why. Because if you joke about one aspect, well then, why not joke about the other aspect? So, either it's all, unless you actually have an idea of what's really kadosh, what's really sacred, and what isn't, well then, you just don't joke about anything. Uh, and in fact, there are some Gemaras that do seem to, where someone, like, uh, certain people laughed at other people's opinions. And Rav and Abaye in separate instances, yeah, you really shouldn't do that. Like, laugh at, uh, like some, a great person's opinions because, you know, they might actually be right. Right? This isn't to say that, you know, smart people can't say things that are stupid. But if you're in that position of arrogance, right, your initial reaction is going to be, wow, that guy's an idiot. As opposed to, you know, even taking that step back, thinking, what did he say? Does this make sense? Does this fit in with stuff? Okay, then I can kind of see it. And sometimes, like, even, you still might reach a negative, um, uh, and, uh, what's, you still might reach a negative conclusion or a negative, you know, take on what a person says, but a haughty person would sooner just look at it at face value and say, this is horrible. As opposed to, well, you might have that initial reaction, but before you actually start going there, it's like, well, let's take a look at it, right? Is there any, like, maybe you could be done l'chaf sechut, right? Find some benefit of the doubt for it. Maybe you can, maybe you can't, but if, again, your reaction is usually to be elate and have that personal quality, you're not going to even bother. You're just going to make fun of anything and everybody and just be one massive cynic and no one's going to put on you to produce anything. So it, you can understand then, I think Wendy used a wonderful adjective there, being destructive. It's a way of bringing down things without building anything up. All right. Uh, another thought here on humor. Kind of depressing, but it's here anyway. Uh, Corinne Brachot 31A. Rabbi Yochanan said in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, it is forbidden to a man to fill his mouth with laughter in this world, because it says, then will our mouth be filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Uh, when will that be? At the time when they shall say among the nations, the Lord hath done great things with these. It was related of Rachel Kish that he never again filled his mouth with laughter in this world after he had heard this saying from Rabbi Yochanan, his teacher. Right, so you might remember this verse in the Hebrew from benching. Az pinu. Right? So then our mouths will be filled with laughter. When will that, uh, when will that be? Oh, it'll be at the time, you know, when the goy, bizman shiomru bagoyim higdilashem la Right? Finishing off the verse there. So, implying that when is our mouth going to be filled with laughter? Oh, it's really only going to be at the time of the redemption. So until then, don't laugh. Um, yeah. Kind of harsh there. Wendy. 
Gemara and Sanhedrin moving on to, well, what about good humor, right? Given that we do have so many Jewish comedians, we are kind of known for our humor, and we just went through a whole bunch of sources that you know, would certainly put a great deal of limitations on humor. Well, what about some, you know, plus things, you know, something on the positive side regarding humor? So we led off with a specific um, area of, I would say, a topic which was off limits in terms of trying, you know, you don't want to put bad thoughts in people's heads. Let's start off with a specifically singled out topic that we are permitted to joke about. Wendy? Sanhedrin 63b. Rav Nachman said all scoffing is forbidden except in scoffing at idols, which is permitted. Well, not I, idols is a bad term. It's avodah zara, and it's again the Aramaic here is leitzanuta, the Aramaic version of that word leitz. So all of that mockery and scoffing that you know we were just railing about in the previous section, that's bad for everything unless you're doing it about other religion. I mean, foreign worship. I mean, the English translation here is idol worship, but you know, basically if you want to go and, you know, put up a stand-up routine trashing Christianity, yeah, I mean, yeah, I know people would say, well, Christianity may or may not be idolatrous, but uh, let's try to pick a good one. What's a good modern-day, like, actual hardcore? Scientology. Ah, there you go. So, right, well, then you actually might get into trouble with the whole, you know, lawsuit thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, if anyone saw the South Park episode with that, they very, because, oh, step back, Scientology has a habit of suing people. Uh, there was an organization called the Cult Awareness Network. Uh, this was reported on, I saw this on 60 Minutes once, this place called the Cult Awareness Network. Um, it was telling people, you know, okay, watch out for these cults, and they included Scientology. So Scientologists apparently applied to the Cult Awareness Network for jobs, mentioned the cover letter they were Scientologists, all got rejected. They sued the Cult Awareness Network for religious discrimination and won. So the Cult Awareness Network went bankrupt. They were then bought out by the Scientologists who took it over and kept on doing the same thing, except Scientology was no longer considered a cult. Um, at least that's what I remember from the 60 Minutes report from God knows how long back. It's, yeah. So uh, when South Park did their you know thing on Scientology, they replaced all the credits with John Doe and Jane Doe, which was you know kind of a nod to that. But look, right, idolatry. Yeah, let's pick out Hinduism or something or yeah, stuff like that. You want to make fun of that? You go right ahead, right? Go go for it. I mean, it actually doesn't say here you should. Incidentally, it says disharga. It, it's permitted. So. If anyone here has an interest in stand-up, go for the religious humor, because that, that always, always, always does well. Um, although the truth is today, and the Christians complain about it, but I think they're right, you can make fun of Christianity. You really can't make fun of any other religion. Um, unless you're Jewish, right? make fun of Judaism, then you've got that whole Seinfeld episode. The anti-dentite, right? Before you know it, they'll have their own schools. They already... <laughs> A guy converted to Judaism and he started telling Jewish jokes. Jerry was upset, not as a Jew, but as a comedian. Uh, Never mind. Um, Right. So there's that. Uh, You even have some comments. Um, uh, Penn Jillette talks about this a bit, where he'll mention comedians will intentionally avoid making jokes about Islam because they're afraid of getting killed. So that might not go over so well. You know, but Christianity, Catholicism, you could pretty much trash them with impunity, at least in today's culture. So, 
you know, if you're a comedian and you're stuck in today's climate, PC will let you do it, but you've got an explicit Gamari here that would permit it. Granted, again, it's important to say it doesn't encourage it. People, it's like, even if you could, it doesn't mean you should. At least, you know, not this Gamari. All right? Anyway, so there's that. Uh, moving on, Gemara in Shabbat 30b has a bit of mixed signals here based on um, contradictions in Kohelet. So, uh, Risa, I think we're up to you. And how are Kohelet's words self-contradictory? It is written, anger is better than play, but it is written, I said of laughter, it is to be praised. It is written, then I commended joy, but it is written, and of joy I said, what doeth it? There is no difficulty. So stop stop there for a second. So if you're going to look at, this is part of the previous paragraph, was how the sages wanted to um, censor the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Kohelet, because it contained internal contradictions. So what are these internal contradictions? So the one that picks up here is, what's schok and simcha, laughter and joy? And Kohelet equivocates on this a whole lot. All right. So it sets all these up. So then it says, actually, these really aren't a con- this is not a contradiction. So there is no difficulty. Continue. Anger. Uh, one, two, three, four, five lines down. Uh, the anger, the anger which the Holy One, blessed be He, displays to the righteous in this world is better than the laughter which the Holy One, blessed be He, laughs with the wicked with the wicked in this world. And I said of laughter, it is to be praised. That refers to the laughter which the Holy One, blessed be He laughs with the righteous in the world to come. Then I commended joy. This refers to the joy of a precept. And of joy I said, what doeth it? This refers to joy, which is not in connection with a precept. This teaches you that the divine presence rests upon man, neither through gloom, nor through sloth, nor through frivolity, nor through levity, nor through talk, nor through idle chatter, save through a matter of joy in connection with the precept, as it is said. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. So stop there for a second. So the last thing is comes up in Rambam in the Laws of Prophecy, that in order to give prophecy in the language of this Gemara for this Shekhinah, for God's presence to you know, rest on someone, you can't be too sad. Right? Um, or indolent, right? But you also, it's not through schok or kalut rosh. Those are two different definitions there, right? One is like just, you know, one refers to, describes here as like, uh, um, well, uh, how to put this? Schok be for, well, schok it translates here as frivolity and kalut rosh is levity, right? We could spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly what the distinctions between those are, but it's one type of humor that seems to be negative as being almost pointless, as opposed to, in contrast with, the simcha, the um, rejoicing that comes with a mitzvah, that comes with a commandment. All right? But there's more. Continue. Rav Judah said, and it is likewise thus, for a matter of halacha, serious study must be preceded by some light-hearted conversation. Rava said, 
and it is likewise thus for a good dream. But that is not so, for Rav Gidal said in Rav's name, If any scholar sits before his teacher and his lips do not drip bitterness, caused by his awe and reverence, they shall be burned. For it is said, his lips are as lilies, Shoshana. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we can skip a bit there. Skip to where it says there is no difficulty. Okay. There yeah. Is, there yeah. is no difficulty. The former applies to the teacher, the latter to, to the disciple. Alternatively, both refer to the teacher, yet there is no difficulty. The one means before he commences, the other after he commences. Even as Rabba, before he commenced his discourse, before the scholars used to say something humorous, and the scholars were cheered. After that, he sat and no one began the discourse. So there seems to be, this last line is something which, you know, is important for this discussion on humor in terms of the intent, uh, where Rabba would begin with a milta dibidichuta. He would begin with something humorous. Why? Gets people in a proper frame of mind. All right? Now, we don't actually have records to my knowledge, although... Um, did I actually include that here? Now, there are, there are, actually, there are times when... Well, there's one case I found I didn't include it here, um, where Reva answered someone like half-jokingly, and the guy didn't really... It kind of went over his head, but whatever. Um, learning Torah is something that is supposed to be serious, right? At the same time, being too serious can sometimes impede your understanding or your mental openness. Um, People who uh, study on creativity, right? Play is important for creativity. If you're trying to understand a piece of Gemara that's very difficult to understand logically, right? It's usually you're thinking in a certain way. One of the things that humor does is it gets you thinking about things slightly differently, right? Sometimes that exercise is useful for trying to understand stuff. So there's a mental exercise involved. There's a mood element involved. Um, not to mention, depending on your audience, it might even be essential. Humor can be an incredibly effective teaching tool, right? If you're going to get certain points across. You can listen to George Carlin, right? Or at least the later stuff, right? You know, a lot of what he does is quasi-philosophical political ranting. It happens to be very funny, right? By interspersing jokes in the middle, the points come home a little bit more, right? And it's a certain way of imparting information. I've been told every now and again today, rabbis will often pepper classes with jokes in the event that thing I know, <laughs> shocking. Uh, in the event, like people might actually again lighten the mood if things might be tense, and you know, and that could be a certain avenue for doing so, right? Now, what's considered awe versus reference? Well, you know, that could also depend. But at the end of the day, it still can be a helpful tool depending on what you're using it for, right? So, next Gemara, I have the translation here, but I'm going to use the art scroll for this. This is, by far, I think, the absolute weirdest Gemara. It's a Gemara in Nida 23a. It goes like this. So, you have a translation in front of you. I'm going to read from the art scroll and throw in some of the footnotes, because we're coming in the middle of a strange sugya that's about to get stranger. So, if Yermia inquired of Rav Zera, uh, that according to Rav Meir, who says that an animal-like fetus in a woman's innard is considered a bona fide child, 
If the fetus was a female and the father accepted kedushin, a wedding, um, uh, money for marriage for her, what is the law? Meaning, is she considered married? A uh, footnote explains here that the Torah gave a girl's father the authority to give her in marriage <clears throat> by accepting kedushin for her any time from birth until six months from the time she attains legal adult status. Since Rabbi Mayer attributes to this animal-like fetus the qualities of a human being in respect to causing childbirth tuma impurity, Rabbi Yirmiya wonders whether such a child has the nature of a human also in regard to kedushin about being married. Thus, if the father accepts kedushin for it, it would be considered betrothed. Uh, I'll skip the Tosot part there. Um, so what's the difference does this make? The difference is whether or not Kedushin causes the betrother to become forbidden to his sister. Meaning another difference, whether or not the fetus is considered a married woman insofar as holding someone other than the husband who cohabits with her liable for adultery is not an issue here because such a deformed baby could never attain the age at which cohabitation is feasible. Are we kind of getting the idea here? Okay, um, how to put this? Woman has a particularly deformed fetus. Koiner of Mayer has a halacha of tuma, because after a woman gives birth becomes impure, right? So Rabbi Zer is asking, well, what if the father married this thing off? Would this thing be considered halachically married, such that if at any, such that with a person, the male, to whom this father married off this thing to, uh, would be prohibited from marrying this thing's sister? That is the question. So this is to say that such a fetus is capable of surviving? Rabbi Yehuda said in the name of Rav, Rav Meir did not state it in as much as its species, meaning a true animal of the species to which this fetus is similar is capable of surviving. (coughs) This implies that this particular fetus, not being a true animal, is not capable of surviving. (coughs) How then could Rav Yirmiya inquire about the sister, since in any case... (coughs) would be permitted after the fetus's death. So the Gemara answers that Rav Achabar Yaakov said, thus far did Rav Yirmiya try to go to, uh, to go to try to bring Rav Zera to laughter, but Rav Zera would not laugh. So next time you think, I've got a weird sense of humor. Basically, that entire case um, about if a woman gives birth to something or has an animal-like fetus, what happens if the father marries that off was not, in fact, a serious question. That was meant in jest with the intent of getting him to laugh, and Rosera still did not laugh. Now, according to Rashi, the reason why he did not laugh is based on what we saw earlier with um, Rav Yochanan and Rish Lakish. But still, I mean... It's a weird Gemara there, and to my knowledge, Ravachor by Yaakov doesn't get yelled at for, you know, you could, I mean, you could imagine that this is kind of disrespectful. I mean, you think it's annoying when you go to the, um, what you want to call it, the guard at Buckingham Palace, and like try to make him smile, and then you've got, you know, Rabbi that you know doesn't laugh. Let's say we don't exactly know the reasons why, you know he doesn't, and this is what you try to do. It's a little strange. Still, Gamar doesn't seem to yell at him for that. Just, oh yeah, this kind of happened. How does this fit in? I don't know. Um, 
There's also one last one here that's kind of along the lines of laughing, but not in the sense of destructive, almost more in the sense of trying to find something positive and being amused at that. Or at least, you know, it's not just... And you could look at humor as something very, again, as mentioned before, something destructive to try to tear stuff down, or use it or just in your natural day-to-day... I don't say day-to-day because this is an unusual situation, but when you see something and try to find the good in it. So here's a story about Rebbe Akiva at the very end of Makot. Uh, long ago, as Rabbi Gamiel, Rabbi Eliezer, Ben Azariah, uh, Rabbi Joshua, and Rabbi Akiva were walking on the road, they heard the noise of the crowds at Rome on traveling from Putioli, 120 miles away. They all fell a-weeping, but Rabbi Akiva seemed merry. Said they to him, Wherefore are you merry? Said he to them, Wherefore are you weeping? Said they, These heathens who bow down to images and burn incense to idols live in safety and ease, whereas our temple, the footstool of our God, is burnt down by fire. And should we then not weep? So the question is, well, they, you know, they're, you know, these seem to be, you know, happy. You know, our temple is destroyed. Why shouldn't we be crying? So Rabbi Akiva said, uh, therefore am I merry. If they that offered him fare thus, oh, if they that offend him fare thus, how much better shall fare they that do obey him? Once so stop there. So that's the answer. It's like, well, these people who are, you know, against God are doing pretty good. Imagine how great we're going to be. Right? Sort of took something that was negative and he took that to something positive that actually made him smile and happy. Right? Continue. Once again, they were coming up to Jerusalem together, and just as they came to Mount Scopus, they saw a fox emerging from the Holy of Holies. They fell weeping, and Rabbi Akiva seemed merry. Wherefore, said they to him, are you merry? Said he, wherefore are you weeping? Said they to him, a place of which it was once said, and the common man that draweth nigh shall be put to death, is now become the haunt of foxes, and should we not weep? Said he to them, therefore am I merry, for it is written... And I will take to me faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah, uh, the son of Yebrachiah. Uh, now what connection has this Uriah the priest with Zechariah? Uriah lived during the times of the first temple, while the other Zechariah lived and prophesied during the second temple. But Holy Writ linked the latter prophecy, uh, the later prophecy of Zechariah with the earlier prophecy of Uriah. In the earlier prophecy, in the days of Uriah, it is written... Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, etc. In Zechariah it is written, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, There shall yet old men and old women sit in the broad places of Jerusalem, so long as Uriah's threatening prophecy has not had its fulfillment. I have misgivings lest Zechariah's prophecy might not be fulfilled. Now that Uriah's prophecy has been literally fulfilled, it's quite certain that Zechariah's prophecy also is defined as literal fulfillment. Said they to him, Akiva, you have comforted us. So, if you didn't follow all of that, based on biblical connections, so, well, if an early, if a prophecy about the destruction of the temple came true, that he actually saw, then the prophecies about the redemption later on are also going to come true. So that gave him not just consolation, but it says that he was mitzachik, it gave him some inspiration for actual laughter. So is humor good or humor bad? Really depends on what you're using it for, Right? Some cases it can be fine, some cases not. All right? What's it going to be? I'm sure everyone's going to make up their own mind in terms of, you know, what crosses a line and what doesn't, but like pretty much everything that we've, well, I should say, you see, there, I always go back to the generalizations. Like many things that we've learned, absolutism doesn't 
really fit into this case, right? You know, like you can, you know, go back to Kohala, you know, there's going to be a time for everything. You know, certain times it's very inappropriate to throw out jokes. Other times it might be, and it could actually be very helpful, right? Content-wise, also very important. There are things you can joke about and things that you can't joke about. What were the Miltabidi Chutas? How did Rav actually introduce his uh, Shear? We don't exactly know. Did he always introduce it with a joke about idolatry? I don't know. There's only so much material anyone can come up with, um, You know, especially trying to come up with something new. I don't know. Right? But I think the intent also matters. All right? So with that, have a wonderful week.